Hello, this is Steve Humble welcoming you to this edition of Humble Perspectives. I'm going to do something different than I've done and maybe what most other people have done on podcast. Uh, five years ago next month, today is April 19th, 2023, I published a book about my spiritual journey. I was motivated to do that, as will become clear, because of my concern for people coming up behind me and younger generations who will be following the Lord and building their lives and churches. Uh, And I wanted to share what I believe is important for their generation out of what God has taught a number of us and what I've tried to work for in my life. So, I'm not a professional reader. Uh, I'm not going to try to read word for word. I will make mistakes. I will once in a while add something uh, pertinent, hopefully. I will not be reporting every footnote that I put in the book for references that I've made to things. But from time to time I will. So. Let me start. The book is titled with a question. For such a time as this, one man's spiritual journey. It was copyrighted in 2018. Dedication to my daughters, Stephanie and Andrea, to my sons-in-law, Daniel Loveland and Daniel Rake, to my 14 grandchildren and any more yet to come. In the memory of my son, Elijah, born in 1972, died in 1996, in the continuing mutual commitment to serve God's purposes together. Acknowledgements. You give marvelous comrades to me, the faithful who dwell in your land. Those are lyrics from a song, For You Are My God, by John B. Foley, based on Psalm 16. Although this book concerns my own spiritual journey, I would have had no such journey without the influence of the many people who have shared this life with me. It's impossible to name all or even most of them, not even those who have contributed greatly to the journey. Yet a few must be mentioned. First, I thank the brothers and sisters with whom I have shared fellowship in Jesus our Lord within several communities of faith since childhood. You have shared yourselves and your own love for God generously, and in so doing, you have helped me to progress this far along the way. Some have contributed through the years more than they know by simply asking from time to time, have you worked on your book lately? I would have had no journey apart from my parents, the late Richard and Virginia Geiger Humble, who brought me up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Because of them, I grew up in a God-aware environment. They laid the foundations of love for Jesus, wisdom about living, and abundant knowledge of the Bible in my life from the start. My children, Elijah, Stephanie, and Andrea, my sons-in-law, Daniel, Loveland, and Daniel Rake, and my grandchildren have given me the primary motivation to share my story. As King David sang, 
One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Psalm 145.4 I am a blessed man. Patricia, my wife, has lived most of the journey with me, although she knows full well my many weaknesses. Still, she gives herself her love and her support freely, even after nearly 47 years of marriage. And now, I might add, it's approaching 52 years. She's the crown, far more precious than jewels, of my life. Proverbs 12.4.31.10 Truly, God gives grace to the humble. James 4.6 Thank you, my love, not the least, for the cover photo. One great weakness of this book, among many, I'm sure, is that the huge and vital role my three ladies, Patricia, Stephanie, and Andrea, have played in the journey is still untold. It is not forgotten. Donna Reese, my editor, turned hard work into a labor of love. Her technical help, her encouragement, and her prayers have made this a far better book than it would have been. My friends Grant Ostrander and Corey Maple made the book's striking cover possible. Above all, I give thanks and honor Jesus who called me, gave me a new start, and is working out his redemption in this broken man. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3.20-21 There are several epigrams. Blessed are those who find strength in you. Their hearts are on the road that leads to you. Psalm 84, 5, from God's Word Translation. There's a promised land somewhere beyond the mountains. I was born to look for it. I was born for the trail, not for the journey's end. We were born to discover and to build, you and I, for the others who will come after us. They will live in a richer, sweeter land, but we will have made the trails. Louis L'Amour, the man from Broken Hills. And love is not the easy thing, the only baggage you can bring. And love is not the easy thing, the only baggage you can bring is all that you can't leave behind. You too, from their song, Walk On. We learn to live, and then we forgive, or the road we're bound to go. More frailer than the flowers, these precious hours that keep us so tightly bound. You come to my eyes like a vision from the skies, and I'll be with you when the deal goes down. Bob Dylan, When the Deal Goes Down. It is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. J.R.R. Tolkien, The Return of the King. Thunder on the mountain, rolling to the ground. Going to get up in the morning and walk the hard road down. Some sweet day, I'll stand beside my king. I wouldn't betray your love or any other thing. Bob Dylan, Thunder on the Mountain.
And now the introduction. The phone rang about 10.15 p.m. on July 4, 1996. Patricia and I had left our Winchester Clark County 4th of July celebration early. Along with a number of other people from our church community, we had gone out to Lycans Park to picnic, listen to music, and watch the fireworks that Thursday evening. For some reason, the music seemed like noise, and Patricia and I decided to head on home about 9.30. She had been in bed a few minutes. I was still watching TV. I answered the phone. Dad, I heard her daughter-in-law Jenny say, you and Mom need to come to Berea Hospital right away. Elijah has had a heart attack. Is it serious? I asked. Yes, she said. Please come as soon as you can. A few minutes later, Patricia and I left our home to make the 45-minute drive to Berea. A heart attack at age 23? On the way to Berea, Patricia and I wondered whether our son might die, as I suppose any parents would. But we could barely even imagine it as a possibility, let alone entertain the thought seriously. We thought the best thing we could do would be to worship. So we did. We sang songs from the scriptures to the Lord, including, I exalt thee from Psalm 97.9, and thou art worthy from Revelation 4.11. We prayed. In our prayers, we sought to commit Elijah, ourselves, and our fears to the Lord. We also prayed for strength and help for our Jenny. When we arrived at the hospital, Tom Watson, one of Elijah's close friends and a fellow student at Berea College, met us at the door into the emergency room. How bad is it? I asked. It's bad, Tom responded. However, when Tom directed us on through the waiting area into a small private room where Jenny, her mother, Wanda, and also Tom's wife Susie were sitting, I knew that Elijah had died. As a pastor, I'd been with several families when they had been taken to a private room like that in order to receive bad news about a loved one. As we entered the room, Dr. Bill Greiser, a surgeon and friend from Winchester, entered through a door on the other side of the room. We greeted each other, but I don't remember details other than that. He said gently, I'm sorry, Elijah is gone. Patricia said, gone where? Jenny replied, he died, Mom. Patricia began to cry, and she, Jenny, Wanda, and I stood for a little while holding on to each other. Beginning a few days after the funeral, I wrote down some of my memories and thoughts from that terrible time. With very slight editing, following are a few passages from that record. The most amazing thing to me, the unsettling thing, was that in those first minutes I had no tears. It seemed that everyone was crying except me and maybe Dr. Greiser. Patricia's first cries and tears seemed to be for Jenny, but soon she began to face her own grief. I was there. I tried to hold Patricia and Jenny. I gave what little strength and encouragement and sympathy I could, but I felt distant and numb. I felt as though there were a big, empty hole in my belly and chest. Uh, emotionally, I couldn't touch this thing. On the other hand, my spirit was toward the Lord. 
I believe this was mostly God's sheer grace given for that moment, but I also think the fact that we had chosen an inner posture of trust and worship on the drive to the hospital had something to do with my inner condition when confronted with the awful facts. I had an almost immediate conviction that God was present, that he had not been taken by surprise, and that somehow he meant this for good. I don't know how to make a clear distinction between the soul and spirit in words, and certainly at that time I was not thinking about theological abstractions nor about the structure of personhood. But I do know that emotionally I felt distant and numb. Mentally, I was trying to believe what I had heard and to make it fit into the picture. And yet, at a deeper level, I knew Elijah was dead, and I knew he was also alive with the Lord, and I knew that God was working in this for good. I was not thinking this, these thoughts. It was an inner knowledge at a deeper level than my mind that undergirded me and informed the process with which my mind and emotions were dealing. After a while, the first period of weeping subsided. We had a time of prayer together, worshiping and yielding to the will of God. Very soon after hearing that Elijah was dead, I realized that this was the big test. This is where I had to find out whether everything we had believed and said through the years would hold true. From time to time through the preceding years, the question had passed through my mind as to whether or not I would be able to stay faithful to God if one of our children were to die. Still, I never believed it would really happen. Now that it had happened, however, where was I to turn but to the Lord? I sensed three things that I had to do in this crisis. I suppose the Lord gave me these three thoughts, but all I really know is that I knew that these were vital responses to make. One, I must not try to understand this event with my mind or ask why. I had to trust God and entrust Elijah to God. So that was the second point. I had to trust God and entrust Elijah to God. And third, I had to worship. I am oriented to wanting to understand. I'm always trying to see the big picture and to see how the events and circumstances of life fit in. Somehow this time I knew that path would lead to a dead end, at least for a while. This one did not fit any scenario I could have conceived. It was too big for my mind to handle. Trusting God meant that I had to recognize that He is of good character, and He does and allows only what is good and right. I had to choose to believe in Him. I had to lean into His goodness and sovereignty. And all of us, including Elijah, we're His. He owns us by virtue of the fact that we are His creations. We are His because He redeemed us in Christ, and we are His because in response to the revelation of His grace, we had chosen to submit our lives to His Lordship. Patricia and I know that He gave us our children to love, train, and steward for Him. Elijah and our girls also are His first, just as we are. Our God has every right to dispose of our lives according to His own will and purpose. And our only appropriate response, the only one that made any sense at all or could help in any significant way, was to worship our Lord, to bow before Him in our broken hearts in this agonizing moment and season, to offer Him honor and praise and adoration, to acknowledge His majesty, sovereignty, and goodness.
to offer Elijah and ourselves afresh to his will and purposes, to rest in his love, mercy, goodness, righteousness, faithfulness, and omniscience. We waited there in the emergency room with Jenny until our daughters, Stephanie and Andrew, Andrea, could be located and brought to the hospital. By the time they arrived, several of our close friends had also come. At last, we began to prepare to leave for home. I think it was 14-year-old Andrea who asked if we could pray together. We all formed a circle and we prayed and we wept and we worshipped. Andrea, with quavering, quavering voice, started to sing Psalm 33, 20-22, a passage that Darren Marlowe, our friend and our church's worship leader, had set to music, a song that Elijah and Jenny had asked Darren and his wife Paula to sing at their waiting, wedding. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your love, may your unfailing love rest upon us, rest upon us. May your love, may your unfailing love rest upon us, even as we put our hope in you. I don't know how long we worshipped, but we experienced the presence of God. His peace ministered to us in our distress. At some point, I began to pray that the anointing and call and sense of purpose that so many had perceived on Elijah in his youth would somehow, through his death, be multiplied to others of his generation and that they would dedicate their lives to serve God's purposes for their own generation just as King David had in his generation, Acts 13.36. This remains my prayer. It is the greatest thing that I can think of that would give meaning to Elijah's premature death. So now I end with the quotes from my journal from that period. Although stunned beyond words and unexpectedly ushered into a long, nearly unbearable season of grief. We would have been completely devastated had it not been for the faithfulness of the Lord and the faithfulness of our family, both natural and spiritual. By God's grace, we kept on trusting God and entrusting Elijah to God and taking a posture of worship. It was no one-time thing. Time after time, for a long time, and even to this day, every once in a while, the pain of that loss would hit us and we would have to choose that posture one more time. Our journey through that terrible life and grief is a story all its own, but not a hopeless one, because in the valley of the shadow of death, our shepherd truly was with us. The desire I had when we prayed at the hospital that night remains. The longing to see many from Elijah's generation come to know and follow Jesus fully has continued and intensified over these past 21 years, now 25 or 26 from his death. I began writing this book in honor of his memory a few months after he died. But from the beginning, I was writing for his sisters, Stephanie and Andrea, for his friends, and for those who might have become his friends had he not died so young. 
In more recent years, I've also had my grandchildren and the people of their generation in mind. And as I've written, I pray that they will carry the story forward into their own generation. And I pray that same prayer, by the way, for these podcasts. My primary goal has been to share about several key truths, not mental concepts, but fundamental realities that God began to unveil and to work into my life when I was young. Truths that I still long to live out more fully now that I'm getting old. It has become my deep conviction that these truths are foundational for life in God and life in this world, and that the current generation must be equipped with them in order to live effectively in this extremely challenging time, perhaps even a turning point in history. In the spring of 2017, some friends recommended several books that I felt compelled to read. Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Charles J. Chaput's, excuse my pronunciation, Strangers in a Strange Land, Living the Catholic Faith in a Post-Christian World, and Anthony Eslin's Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture. These books analyze our present culture and society and urge those who follow Jesus to embrace fully our calling to be the people of God and to be his salt and light in these days of darkness. While I was still reading these books, another little book came to my attention. On a whim, as it seemed at the time, I ordered James W. Thompson's The Church in Exile, God's Counterculture in a Non-Christian World. In this little book, Thompson shows that the message that the Apostle Peter had for the suffering people of God living in the hostile world of the Roman Empire is a message we desperately need to take hold of today. These books renewed and solidified my conviction that those foundational truths upon which a number of us from my generation had sought to build our lives and our church communities are even more pertinent today than they were 40 or 50 years ago when we, like pioneers, begin to try to work out those spiritual realities in our everyday world. As I read, I also, or as I read, I also was convinced that I must finish the account of my personal journey with its struggles and failures and small successes, whether or not anyone would ever want to read it. Although this book is autobiographical in content, my primary purpose for writing has not been to tell the facts of my life. Rather, I have tried to share my spiritual journey, the way in which God took hold of my life and has led me to know Him and to offer myself in service to him. The word spiritual is tricky because it can mean very different things, particularly in our contemporary ways of viewing the world. This is far too complicated a matter for me to address in detail, but the two two of the most common contemporary uses of spiritual may help to describe what I mean by that word, spiritual. In recent decades, in other words, in the postmodern world, spiritual has come to reference any mystical or philosophical ideas that people may have or that they may practice. It is fashionable to be a spiritual person with some sort of spirituality, as long as there is no claim made that that spirituality is actually true and right for everyone. It's true for me, is the common claim. For those primarily influenced by modern ways of thinking, modern, that is, as the predecessor of postmodern, 
There is a sharp distinction, even a division, between the material world or the real world and the spiritual world. If there is even a spiritual world, many think. The late Dr. Francis Schaeffer described this division as upper story separated from lower story. His books, The God Who Is There and How Should We Then Live, bring this his description of this division very clearly. The lower story is the material world, the world of nature, the creation, the world that can be experienced by the five physical senses and known by reason. It's the world that science seeks to explore and explain. The upper story has been called the world of grace, of God the Creator, the world of heaven and heavenly things, the world that for some, if it exists at all and can be known at all, can be known only by revelation and faith. Many Christians who have this mindset, this mindset of there being an upper story and lower story, in other words, of there being a material world and a real world, although they are usually unaware of it, emphasize the truth that can be known by God's revelation of Scripture, but the tendency is strong for that truth to be relevant to one's inner life or Sunday life or religious life, but not something that has much to do with the world of everyday life, except perhaps to provide a basis for morality. Some other Christians think the spiritual realm is known by a leap of faith, by a choice to believe in spite of the fact that the belief is not grounded in rational understanding not open to the five senses. In contradistinction to any of these, when I speak about my spiritual journey, I'm talking about my actual experience of God the Creator interacting with me and changing me right in the midst of this everyday world, which He created and in which I live. Yes, God is distinct from His creation. Yes, there is the unseen reality, the reality of God in the heavenlies. And there is the reality that we see, the visible created world. The Apostle Paul distinguished between these two realities when he wrote, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 The unseen and the seen are distinct, but they are not divided, according to the scriptures. God existed before the world. God created the world and God is actively involved in the world. Yet the disobedience of man brought about the fall, which has created a blockage between man and God, a separation that man alone is not able to bridge, but a separation that God has already bridged, far from a spirituality that's mystical or philosophical. I will be sharing about my journey with the God who created and rules the universe the God who is far greater than his creation and yet joined himself to creation in Jesus the Messiah, the bridge by which the fallen and sinful people may be reconciled and brought back into a functioning relationship with God who created us. By God's grace and mercy, I, like millions of others in history, have been reconciled to God through Jesus. And I am being restored by God's own Holy Spirit as the whole creation eventually will be. These days, many people are fascinated by TV programs centered on the physical restoration of homes. 
My story is one example of restoration. It is part of the ultimate restoration story, the restoring of all things. Acts 3, 19 to 21, Colossians 1, 19 to 20, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. The Apostle John foresaw this restoration and he heard God's declaration. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Revelation 21, 1-5 Mine is not the story of a great hero or of a spiritual giant, or of a holy man. It's the story of a quite average person whom God has graciously called to follow Jesus. Not because I was worthy, but because, as the Apostle Paul said, God uses the foolish, the weak, and the common for his good purposes. 1 Corinthians 2.26-31 Concerning his own call, Paul also wrote, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.12-14 Paul's declaration sums up the way I have desired to live even though I have failed often. God helping me, it's also the way I desire to finish my life. A number of years ago, my friend Joseph Holbrook mentioned the title of Eugene Peterson's book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction. What a great epitaph that would be, I have thought many times. If only I could truly live that way, fully obedient, and steadily, even doggedly if necessary, pursuing Jesus and trying to lead our family and our, our small church to do so with me. In truth, a more fit, fitting epitaph would probably read as follows. As we both crawl toward the lamp, words that the late musician Larry Norman used to describe the spiritual journey that he and his friend Randy Stonehill had begun.